On March 25, 2005, an 11-year-old girl had been playing soccer on the street at the intersections of 89th and Main Street in South Los Angeles when her ball suddenly landed on the roof of a nearby abandoned halfway house. Some neighborhoods in the Los Angeles area are like this. There's often a spattering of abandoned and forgotten homes and structures that just are left there, unattended to. Places that nobody really wants to deal with. And sometimes our kids are sadly relegated to playing in areas like this. So this girl somehow landed her ball atop one of these abandoned structures. Naturally, her next course of action is to climb onto the roof to retrieve her ball. And curiosity getting the best of her, she decided to make her way over to the chimney of the old home and peer down inside. What she saw certainly frightened the child. A skull, right there, stuck inside this chimney. She immediately went home and informed her dad of her findings, and he, in turn, contacted authorities. The news of this grisly discovery made it into some of the local Southern California newspapers, as well as some of the television news stations, with authorities hoping to generate some interest, which would, in turn, bring about some leads as to who this skeleton in the chimney might be. Meanwhile, at the office of the Los Angeles County Coroner, the lead detective assigned to this case, Detective Chris Barling, and a forensic anthropologist, Dr. Elizabeth Miller, intently stared at these bones, covered in chimney soot, neatly arranged in a manner, in the order that they would be found inside the human body, laid out to form the rudimentary shape of a human skeleton atop a cold metal table. Meticulously looking at every single bone of what is left of this person, Dr. Miller explained to Detective Barling all of the details that she could see of the bones that they'd recovered. What was she looking for? Any signs that might have indicated something came in contact with any of these bones? Evidence that a knife had sliced into this person? Perhaps leaving a nick or a scrape on any one of them? She closely examined each of those bones of the fingers to see if perhaps that there was a sign that they were used to defend or ward off an attack. Dr. Miller was able to determine that these bones belonged to a boy. She estimated him to be somewhere between the age of 12 and 15 years old. So, just a child. His jeans were tattered and stained, his shirt white, and conspicuously absent, shoes. He'd apparently had no shoes on. Strange, thought the forensic anthropologist. She was certain of one thing. If someone were to come forward with a picture of this boy, she would be able to identify him straight away. As Detective Barling stood by watching her as she was staring at these bones, several times, seemingly impatiently wanting, needing to know one important question. Was this boy a victim of foul play? As, of course, this is why the detective is there to find out if he's got a homicide on his hands. But Dr. Miller, she could offer no definitive answer to the detective. 
she was unable to find any signs of physical trauma to the bones. There were no wounds on the finger, hand, or arm bones that indicated an attempt at defending oneself. There were no marks or damage to any of the other bones. However, she did find one interesting thing about the boy's jaw area. At some point in his young life, he had sustained a substantial injury to either his face or teeth, perhaps a fall of some sort. And he had some very extensive dental work completed in order to repair the damage done to his teeth. His two front teeth protruded further out than the others, indicated that he might have had somewhat of a prominent overbite. And based on the features of his skull, Dr. Miller was able to determine that the boy was African-American. And aside from the dental work, there was nothing unnatural about the state of this boy's bones. So Dr. Miller and Detective Barling pondered what it was they were looking at here with this boy in the chimney, as the unknown boy had come to be known as. Each of them, based on the capacity of their jobs, guided their thinking. They had some suppositions about how it was the boy wound up in there. Dr. Miller's first thoughts were that maybe he climbed into the chimney for whatever reason and became stuck inside. And after becoming stuck, if he had tried to call out for help, it is likely that the makeup of the materials inside the chimney, the way that it was constructed, whatever it was made out of, made it difficult, if not impossible, for him to be heard. And he eventually succumbed to perhaps starvation, dehydration, or positional asphyxiation. And we went over that cause of death extensively in our episode on Kendrick Johnson, that boy who allegedly died of positional asphyxiation whilst being stuck upside down inside that wrestling mat. And if there had been anyone residing in the home at the time, the odor of decomposition may not have been detected by anyone because it could have been carried upwards and out of the home rather than traveling inwards. The bones themselves, even sitting there in the cold room inside the coroner's office, were still emanating somewhat of an odor. And it would be that fact that led Dr. Miller to believe that the boy had perished perhaps five years ago, but no longer than that. To her, the more likely scenario is that this was a freak but unfortunate accident. It's sort of a mental defense she seems to put up for herself, considering the line of work she does. To her, she'd rather postulate that this is a strange accident rather than a killer is out there killing boys and dumping their bodies into chimneys. She just doesn't want to allow her brain to go there when it doesn't have to. And in this case, it didn't. But not Detective Barling, being a homicide detective, he's probably more cynical than the average person. His gut was telling him that this was a murder. I wanted to stop here and think about that for a minute. The forensic anthropologist has indicated that there were no obvious signs of foul play, but there doesn't have to be for there to have been a murder to have taken place. There could have been a suffocation or poisoning, Things that don't leave marks on bones, right? So what is it about this case that is telling the detective that 
foul play was involved. I'm not certain except for the fact that the boy didn't have any shoes on. That aspect of this bothers me. That was a red flag. And it has me thinking that he was brought there unexpectedly or in a hurried manner. He didn't have time to put on shoes or he was made to go in such a way that he was unable to. We will circle back to that in a little bit. The story being in the news and in the newspapers did not generate a thing. Nobody came forward expressing concern that they'd had a young boy go missing from their family over the past five years. No parents with missing children. Nothing. Not a one. Nobody contacted authorities wanting to know if this was their boy. Which was unusual. People who are missing children, even when years and years pass, they are almost always keeping their eyes and ears open for discoveries of remains. They contact law enforcement wanting to know if the latest find is their missing loved one. But not this time. Not this boy. So, who is he? Where did he come from? Is he a runaway? What's his name? This was eating away at the detective on the case. He started looking back at missing persons reports, dating back about five years, the amount of time that Dr. Miller speculated he'd been entombed within that chimney. But no case matched. Not even close. By July of 2005, investigators had commissioned the help of forensic artist Marilyn Draws to put together a composite drawing of what the boy in the chimney may have looked like in life. Using his skull, she was able to give a face to the boy, and her image was distributed to media outlets who asked the public for its help in giving this boy, who now had a face, a name. The renewed media interest this time, with the sketch, it worked. A woman by the name of Donna Theus was watching TV one evening in her living room when she saw that composite drawing of the boy flashing across her television screen. A scream escaped her lips. That boy, that boy resembled her cousin. She quickly grabbed her phone and called her Aunt Kalia Thompson, now 78 years old. Donna asked her aunt if she'd seen the boy's picture on the news. They found a boy in the chimney, she tells her. You know, Aunt Clelia, that could be Robert. Robert? Who's Robert? Robert was Clelia's son, Robert Thompson. He was only 14 years old when he went missing in 1977. Yes, dreamers, 1977. Christmas Eve, to be exact. 28 years earlier. 28 years? This can't be possible, right? The forensic anthropologist said no more than five years. That's way off base. Could Dr. Miller have been that wrong? Perhaps. Detective Barling was incredulous, too. He could not imagine that the boy had been encased in that chimney all those years without everyone being none the wiser. 
Yes, the home was abandoned by then, 2005. But prior to that, it for years had been a halfway house, having only closed a couple of years earlier. Could it be that no one knew? Yeah, I could see that. Who might be residing in a halfway house? People who might need a bed for the night to sleep? People who've been recently released from prison trying to get back on their feet? Could they have just not noticed or cared or knew if there had been a weird odor emanating from the chimney? Yeah, it could happen. So without any other leads to really go on, the LAPD Missing Persons Unit had someone pay a visit to Kalia to obtain a DNA sample from her. The revelation that this might actually be the remains of a 28 years long lost Robert Thompson caused Dr. Miller to have to reconsider her findings. She started to wonder about the conditions he'd been in all those years. How could his bones have been so well preserved for so long? And not only that, still have the distinctive smell of human decomposition. She sought some opinions of some of her colleagues in the field of anthropology and forensic sciences to see what she could find, but none of them really had any definitive answers for her. In a word, they were all perplexed. None of them had seen remains that old in the condition they were in, so well-preserved. Their best guesstimation was there must have simply been the perfect combination of environmental conditions that slowed the degradation process of the boy's skeletal remains. The bones did have signs that they had been slightly charred on their surface, which may be an indication the fireplace was used a minimal amount, just enough to cause the bones to remain as well-preserved as they were found. You know, dreamers, it occurred to me as I was researching the story that I thought maybe the forensic experts should have taken a closer look at the clothing that was found with the remains. Styles were drastically different in the 70s. Manufacturers may have been identifiable. The buttons may have had the brand of jeans that he'd been wearing. There could have been something that clearly stood out about the pants that made them appear dated. But there was no information I could find about the clothing and what it yielded. The focus of the investigation, it seemed, was on the bones. It took about five months, but the DNA results finally came back from the lab which was located in Sacramento. And it confirmed what Robert's cousin Donna had suspected. Robert Thompson was indeed the boy in the chimney. Clelia finally had the answers as to what became of her son all those years ago. And now, Detective Barling had a name and his family to work with. Right away, questions started running through his thoughts. Who was the last person to have seen Robert alive? What was he doing inside the chimney of that home? Is it possible he could have been burglarizing the home and got stuck trying to get in? Dreamers, you'd be surprised when I looked online just how many burglars get stuck in chimneys. It seems to be a thing that actually happens quite a lot. Anyway, so was Robert maybe playing a game of hide-and-go-seek with some of the neighborhood kids? Maybe his soccer ball ended up on the roof too, just like the child who'd finally found him, and his curiosity got the best of him as well. Or did someone put him in there? 
And there was another lingering question. Why wasn't Robert wearing any shoes? Detective Varling came to learn from Clulia that they lived only a few blocks away from the home where Robert was ultimately found. So, did he walk there with no shoes on? On Christmas Eve? I know this is Southern California and the weather is usually pretty nice and it certainly doesn't snow where they resided, but it still gets cold in December and it was raining that day. Would Robert have walked all the way there without shoes on? Or did he get there by some other means? By car? Or maybe he was carried? Detective Barling was able to get a great deal of information from Robert's family, and they would definitely be able to shed some light on just who Robert Thompson was in life. His family said that Robert was an incredibly sweet boy, very loving, very caring. Although he did have a mischievous side to him, he preferred to be in his bare feet when he was at home, which might be an explanation as to why he wasn't wearing any shoes. Robert had two younger brothers, Smith and Clinton. Robert was the third youngest of Clulia's children, but she made it quite clear that Robert was the one who needed the most care and attention out of all of her children. Robert was diagnosed with some cognitive challenges. Social workers who interacted with him, helping him get through some of his struggles, determined that he, by the age of 14, had the intellectual capacity of a child around the age of six, a first grader. Detective Barling learned, looking through Robert's medical records, that he began having grand mal seizures about the age of four and was placed on anti-seizure medications from that point forward. Kalila said that if he had forgotten to take his medications, he'd have as many as three seizures a day. One time in 1974, He'd suffered a grand mal seizure that was so bad, he passed out and fell into a swimming pool. If not for his sister jumping in to save him, he may have likely drowned. The following year, in 1975, he suffered yet another seizure, that one causing him to fall onto his face, which required reconstructive dental surgery. This was the work that Dr. Miller had observed in Robert's jaw upon her examination of his remains. And the more and more Detective Barling explored Robert's life and his family's history, the more and more he began to feel his initial instincts back when he and Dr. Miller were gazing upon his bones on that metal table that past March, that his instincts were correct. In his gut, he did not feel an accident befell the boy. Robert's family, his mother, she told Detective Barling story after story after story of all the tragedy in her life. Tales of sorrow, pain, loss. Things that seem almost impossible to all have happened to one single family. Absolute heartbreak Clelia has endured in her 78 years. Detective Barling knew that he needed to know more about Robert's mother. He needed to sit down and have a long talk with her. His instincts... They were telling him that the answers he sought may just be woven in one of the stories that she would have to tell. He made arrangements to visit her at home. The place was tiny, the back part of a duplex, still in the same South Los Angeles neighborhood. 
just a few blocks up from 89th and Main where her boy had been found. She made it clear to the detective right from the start that she never, ever believed her son had run away from home. Never. For decades, she'd believed something dark, something evil had taken place. And she carried those feelings around with her. The weight of the world, I'm sure. She had a very strong conviction that someone had taken him away and killed him. She felt that deep into the core of her being. But what she didn't know, what her mind and her heart and her soul would not reveal to her, is where he was. She seemed to have felt like she wasn't meant to know. So she wouldn't have to face the truth that he was indeed dead that some unearthly higher power was keeping his fate secret from her in order to spare her the anguish. As she spoke with Detective Barling, he could see that she struggled with remembering exact dates. Does that strike you guys as weird? That she'd become forgetful about important dates surrounding the short life of her long-lost, now-found son, Robert? Maybe, because she is elderly now. Maybe places and dates are beginning to escape her memories. Well, dreamers, it's not only because Kalila is getting up there in years. It's because she stores her death certificates in a trunk, where she really doesn't have to access them all that often, because she probably doesn't want to. And yeah, I said certificates, seven of them, one for each of her children she's lost throughout her life, seven children, dreamers, seven. How does one endure the heartache? I have no words. She lost one child, a girl during infancy. After that, six of her nine remaining children died, one after another, after another, after another. One of her daughters, Shirley, she would be the only one to pass away of natural causes. Another daughter named Rose was stabbed to death by a former boyfriend at the age of 30. Another, Benny, was also stabbed to death by a former left interest at the age of 34. What are the chances of a family being struck with the same tragedy twice? Astronomical. Just unthinkable. And then you remember Robert's two younger brothers that he loved to play with so, so much before he vanished? Kalila's two youngest boys, Clinton and Smith? They both took their own lives. Clinton at the age of 20. Smith, only one year younger at the age of 19. As Kalila put it to Detective Barling, it was one right after another. Every year there was a death, but it all began with Robert. She then described for Detective Barling the last time she'd ever seen her son. It was December 24th, 1977, Christmas Eve. It was a rainy day, 
the entire family had gathered at Kalila's home for holiday celebrations. But there was one person there who was in attendance who was not a member of the family, a man by the name of Theodore Van Smith. He was sometimes called Theodoric, but for the purposes of this story, I'm just going to refer to him as Van Smith. He was a former boyfriend of her daughter Rose. Rose and Van Smith did have a child together, a son, but their relationship did not last. And it actually ended kind of badly, as he was physically abusive. And by the way, dreamers, he was not the one who'd stabbed her to death. That was another abusive relationship she'd found herself in. So anyway, Van Smith was not particularly welcomed at the Christmas Eve family gathering. But everyone decided to not cause a scene, just let it be for the sake of the holiday festivities. Besides, in the past, the kids really seemed to enjoy Van Smith's company. He'd always be the first to offer food and snacks and sodas. They'd go off and play games with Van Smith. Kids just seemed to like the guy. Some of the family would later go on to say that they had heard Robert became really upset because he for some reason, thought that he wasn't going to get a gift that he'd really wanted badly for Christmas, a new bike. And that in the throes of a temper tantrum, Robert stormed off and never came back. Nobody actually witnessed this happen, though, and his mom, she said that this was an inaccurate account of what happened that day. She said Robert vanished in the morning. She said all of her children assumed that he would eventually come back because he left without his shoes. So, they went about their Christmas Eve party plans throughout the remainder of the late morning and into the afternoon. She didn't elaborate as to why Robert left or where she understood him to be going. She might not have known, but I'm assuming it wasn't uncommon for him to go outside to play, nor was it uncommon for him to do so without his shoes, as I mentioned earlier. But as the day wore on and nobody had seen or heard from Robert, His family began to grow concerned. His brothers and sisters began scouring the neighborhood looking for him. They checked places they thought he might be. They even searched the empty home where he had been discovered almost three decades later. But it didn't enter their minds to check up in the chimney. They called out his name everywhere they searched. And this continued on the following day. Christmas. They spent their entire Christmas day looking for their brother, their son, never finding him. His mother called the police and reported her Robert missing. A widespread door-to-door search was conducted. Robert's story was reported by local television news stations about the missing boy. Because the focus was primarily on finding Robert, it went unnoticed that someone else went inexplicably missing during the course of the Christmas Eve festivities. Someone who had made an unwelcomed appearance and just as quickly disappeared. Theodore Van Smith. He had shown up at the home that morning and it wasn't long after Robert disappeared, reflecting back upon that day, that Van Smith had vanished too. Nobody saw him for the rest of Christmas Eve. Nobody at the party noticed. Everyone was worried about Robert. After talking to Clulia, Detective Barley went back to his office to ponder the things he'd heard. 
He pulled the old missing persons case file on Robert to see if anything it had to offer. For eight years after he'd gone missing, there was nothing in his file. No leads, no suspects, no information. It grown cold. But then on February 23rd, 1985, something happened. In the early morning hours of that Saturday, Clelia found herself hurriedly walking down the corridor of Martin Luther King Drew Medical Center. She'd gotten word that her youngest boy had been hit by a car. As she came closer to the room he was in, she'd heard her son screaming. He saw her in the hall and cried out to her, Mama, Mama, the dork killed Robert. He told me he killed Robert. She ran into the room to find her 12-year-old son Smith lying on the bed, covered in blood. She could see tire marks running down his forehead, down his chest, and he was in an incredible amount of pain. Smith was able to tell police that Theodore Van Smith had taken him in his car to a dark alley and sexually assaulted him, telling him, if you don't make me feel good, I'm going to kill you just like I killed your brother Robert. And when he was done assaulting the boy, he pushed him out of the car and then he ran over him. This guy is just monstrous. Van Smith was arrested and charged with several counts, including child rape and attempted murder. He pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 30 years in prison. Dreamers, I have to admit, I was afraid that, as I was reading this, that his sentence was going to be something ridiculous like we'd seen in the past with those who've pleaded out of these kinds of cases back in the 70s and 80s. How we've seen so many child predators get such lenient sentences in the past. But I was pleasantly surprised when he was given as many years as he was. So before Van Smith was actually convicted, he was interrogated about Robert's disappearance. But he just toyed with police. Of course, he didn't admit to anything. He kind of danced around the questions. He hinted that he might have been involved, but maybe, maybe not. He told police to go ahead and check his backyard, see what they could find. Investigators conducted a dig in Van Smith's backyard, but nothing was found. He knew they'd find nothing. Otherwise, he'd never suggest it. And Robert's case grew cold yet again. And it stayed that way until 12 years later, in 1997, when a detective in the LAPD Missing Persons Unit by the name of Deborah Kane came across Robert's case file and became interested in his story. When Detective Barling read through Detective Kane's notes on the case, he started to feel that a lot of what he'd been feeling, looking at those bones back at the coroner's office, that Detective Kane had been feeling the same things too back in 1997. She'd had a feeling, just like he did, that Robert's case was indeed a homicide case, not just a missing person. She was certain that if he were a runaway, he would have turned up. But this boy, he just vanished, never to be seen again at least at that point in 1997, 20 years on by then. During Detective Kane's investigation into Robert's disappearance, 
She requested that they have the head of the Los Angeles Police Department's Behavioral Sciences Unit at the time, Dr. Chris Mohandy, to travel to Kelly Patria State Prison in order to conduct an interview with Van Smith. All she wanted to know was where in the world were Robert's bones located. Dr. Mohandy made the trip down to the prison, located about 150 miles or 241 kilometers east of the city of San Diego. Accompanied by a psychiatrist working at the prison, Dr. Mohandy talked to Van Smith for a few hours. He found him to be very calculating and controlling during the conversation. He also realized that Van Smith was completely and totally consumed with, quote, sexual matters, body parts, and missing body parts, unquote. Dr. Mohandy also wrote in his notes, quote, the inmate clearly fits the profile of a sexual predator whose preferential target is minor males. It is concluded that Van Smith would be capable of the probable murder and disappearance of Robert Thompson, unquote. But a confession? No, that would not happen. And this is precisely the place Detective Barling stood, the exact predicament Detective Kane had been in nine years earlier wondering how to prove Robert was a victim of homicide. Except, at least, Detective Barling had Robert this time. His location, thankfully, wasn't a mystery anymore. Van Smith was granted parole in 2000, but it wasn't too long before he became a patient at the Atascadero State Hospital, located in the central part of California. When he was questioned by the Los Angeles Times about his knowledge of Robert's case, all he would say was that he remembered him having gone missing, but he insisted that he had nothing to do with it or his death. Van Smith even said that he figured by now, if they had any good proof that he did have something to do with it, he'd have been arrested already. That is obviously not a confession, but that statement kind of reeks of guilt to me. I don't know why. It's like a big F you to the police. They've got nothing on him. Otherwise, they'd have already come for him. Almost like a taunt, you know? Anyway, Detective Barling wasn't sure that he would be able to get any information from Van Smith. His mental state remains in question. Even if he was able to visit him at the state mental hospital, he could very well be insane. But he is going to have one thing at the top of his agenda to make sure that Van Smith never leaves the confines of that mental institution. He's convinced he's homicidal and that he's responsible for Robert's death. He just isn't certain he'd ever be able to prove it. On February 8th, 2007, 28 years, one month, and 16 days after she'd last laid eyes on her son Robert, Kalila was finally able to lay him to rest. She held a small ceremony in honor of his brief time on earth, and he was cremated. Burial just was not an affordable option for mom. She had two pictures of her son on display at his funeral. One was the drawing of him made by the forensic artist, the one that prompted Kalila's niece to call her and alert her as to the news a boy had been found in the chimney. It was actually the only close-up rendering she had of him. 
The other picture was one of Robert in life, sitting on a school bus, holding a textbook in his lap, staring off to the side. Whatever it was that had his attention, nobody knows. He looks thoughtful, maybe daydreaming. It's easy to find yourself overcome with emotions staring at that photograph of him. I gazed at it for a long, long time. And I will post these pictures on social media for you all to see as well. For Kalila, the day that she laid Robert to rest was the day that she finally found a measure of closure. As for the current state of Robert's case and Theodore Van Smith, I was unable to find any further updates. As far as I know, no charges have ever been brought against anyone in the death of Robert Thompson. Author Russell W. Moore has written a book about the story called Where is Robert? And the audio version is narrated by Kalila herself. It tells Robert's story, one of an at-risk youth living in a family far below the poverty line. It was designed to be a tool for teaching parents, educators, psychologists, social workers, and people who are in the medical profession, students and clergy as well. It encourages readers to analyze and reflect upon the life stories of children and understand and recognize the need for interventions for cases such as Robert's. Dreamers, I can't thank you enough for joining me for this telling of Robert's story. This is one I'd been wanting to tell you from the time I first started California Dreaming. I hope you enjoyed it, and until next time, sweet dreams.